Okay, welcome to the Mindspace podcast. I'm Joe Flanders. Thanks for tuning in. I'm feeling incredibly lucky that I had the chance to have a conversation with Zindel Siegel for the podcast today. Zindel is a distinguished professor of psychology and mood disorders at the University of Toronto, and he's best known for his co-founding of Mindfulness-Based Cognitive Therapy, MBCT, along with his UK colleagues Mark Williams and John Teasdale. I really can't overstate the importance of Zindel's contribution to the field of clinical psychology. MBCT is now recognized and used around the world as an essential support for people suffering from mood and anxiety disorders. It has also been an important factor in a very deep paradigm shift in the field, which is moving from cognitive behavioral approaches to ones emphasizing mindfulness and acceptance. Zindel also has an impressive publication record. He's an author of over 100 scientific publications, many of which are in high-profile medical journals, and some have even been featured in well-known publications like the Wall Street Journal, CNN, and the New York Times. He's also an author of 10 books, including two very well-known ones on MBCT, The Mindful Way Through Depression, which is a guide to using mindfulness to deal with mood, and Mindfulness-Based Cognitive Therapy for Depression, affectionately known as The Green Book, uh, and that really is a kind of Bible for teachers of MBCT. In the conversation, we talked about Zindel's experience and the story behind the creation and evolution of MBCT. We got his take on how exactly he thinks MBCT and CBT are helpful for managing mood. And he talked about some of the challenges he and his team are facing around the dissemination of MBCT. And he also talked a little bit about the current science of mindfulness and well-being. You can find tons of info about MBCT at Zindel's website, mbct.com. And you can also find a database of certified MBCT facilitators at accessmbct.com. Now, if you're interested in participating in an MBCT program or becoming an MBCT teacher, check out the Mindspace website at mindspacewellbeing.com. Okay, without any further delay, here is my conversation with Zindel Siegel. So hi, Zindel. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Joe. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, it's a real pleasure to have you. Maybe you could start by telling us uh, how you got into mindfulness. Um, that's a great question because the term mindfulness is really, really broad. The way that I got into it actually was through more of the clinical application of mindfulness. And... Um, recognizing its uh, potential utility with uh, people who had a mood disorder and were looking to stay well. And also some of the um, resemblances between the ways in which mindfulness allows people to relate to their internal experience and some of the ways in which cognitive therapy tries to teach people to do a similar type of thing. Um, and we started, I started, and, and, and my colleagues, Mark and John, started considering all of this from the cognitive therapy side and eventually moved over to the mindfulness side because we found that the specific training and the specific methods involved in learning and practicing mindfulness provided a very, very clear um, form of guidance to helping people develop different relationships to their to their thoughts, to their feelings, and to their bodily sensations. What was the the sort of the hook, or what was it about mindfulness that intrigued you to kind of move into it instead of staying with uh, CBT, which you were doing, as far as I understand, uh, you were concentrating on that in the in your earlier years. Yeah, we read and, and, and um, learned about the clinical use of mindfulness and found that one of the things that really stood out to me was uh, in cognitive therapy, we're trying to, to teach patients how to um, have a little bit more psychological distance from their moment-to-moment um, -moment experience. And that can happen, that does happen from time to time in therapy, but the 
way in which it happens can be hit or miss. Um, and it's sort of something that falls out of the procedures used in cognitive therapy. And I would say any psychotherapy, really, you know, you work in a relationship bound form of therapy, um, you can develop some psychological distance um, that allows you to develop this relationship to your current experience. But the thing about mindfulness is that there is a specific pattern of training in that particular skill that was at the heart of the approach. And so we felt like this was a much more efficient and direct way to train people in doing this thing that could be very helpful psychologically. And that also one wouldn't have to rely on it um, in a probabilistic way as falling out of um, a good uh, work in therapy. So it sounds like this uh, psychological distance, uh, which I sometimes uh, refer to as decentering, that yeah. sounds like really the target of these interventions, or at least it's a target of MBCT. Um, and what you really got interested in getting to the bottom of, is that right? Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it, it, it's important to, I think, say from the outset that there are many things going on in these programs. And at the beginning, um, it's useful to have a target to say, it's really helpful to teach people to do this, or it's really helpful to teach people to do that, or it's really helpful if people learn to do this or that for themselves. So having that target allows us to say that, you know, the work is proceeding in a direction that is helpful or not so helpful. Um, and, and what we were finding was that the appeal of mindfulness is that the way of practicing was intended to build up that very skill. And the decentering components, I think we know a lot more about it now, uh, seem to be very important. Can you maybe just define it or say more what you mean by decentering or psychological distance? Well, I think it's been referred to in a number of different ways, but it's developing a relationship to your present moment experience that allows you to be less fully identified with those experiences as self, as me, or as mine. That sounds a bit Buddhisty. That, that we need to um, recognize the illusion of self. Um, does that resonate with you? Does that uh, scare people off? Um, it doesn't scare me off because that's not how I talk about it or phrase it. These are not intended to dissolve self. These are intended to provide people with a perspective on experience that allows them to work more skillfully with the contents of mind as they show up, but not from a perspective where the only thing they can do with those contents is to identify them as realities. Mm -hmm. So we don't take the extra step and say, and therefore, no self is a great place to get to, and therefore, self is an illusion. That's something which is added maybe by other people, but it's not really where we go. Right. So you've been very involved in creating this curriculum, this uh, intervention. Yeah. Really from scratch to some extent, maybe you could just briefly tell us where this curriculum came from and what it was like to create this thing that is now so widely adopted in so many healthcare systems all over the world. Yeah, I mean, it was very um, exciting and challenging at first. Uh, I think for myself and for Mark and John uh, as well, we were stepping out of our comfort zones in a, a huge way and interacting with a community that had far less credibility inside academic psychology, academic psychiatry. Um, but we were convinced that there were lots of overlap and that there was a commitment to understanding some of the degree of overlap through an empirical and evidence-based lens. I think if that hadn't been there, I, I don't think we would have engaged um, as readily as we did. And, and a lot of the initial work that we were doing was trying to look at mechanisms 
inside cognitive therapy, and we landed on this, this psychological distance decentering, and found out through um, just various inputs from uh, people t- telling us about other work. You know, for example, Marsha Linehan, who was doing a sabbatical with John Teasdale and Mark Williams, told them about John Kabat-Zinn's work, our own work on um, some of the empirical mood induction studies that I'd conducted, that John had conducted, uh, were pointing to this as an important mechanism. And then we started to read um, some of the, I mean, I think we read Full Catastrophe Living, and inside that book we were struck by the ways in which John Kabat-Zinn was describing decentering much in the same way that we would see it in some of the people that we were working with. And so we thought, this is worth pursuing. And we went and spent time at the Center for Mindfulness watching classes that John was running, uh, Ferris Urbanowski was running, Salki Santorelli was running. And then uh, leaving those classes and kind of huddling, trying to decode what was actually going on. And finding enough in there to feel that um, the mindfulness-based stress reduction program, you know, to ask the question, could MBSR elements of that be used to configure a program for people with a mood disorder who had recovered from their index episode. I, I've actually been meaning to ask you this for a long time. Um, I remember I went to spend a week with John and Saki. It was their week-long mindfulness-based stress reduction in mind-body medicine. And John, at that time, he was very passionate about making sure we understood that Mindfulness was a way of being, and it's a way of being that's totally orthogonal to the rest of the time when we're not in this way of being. And he, sa- he said something that really resonated with me, or that really struck me uh, when he said it, and I was getting into mindfulness, but primarily a CBT therapist at the time. And he said, if you don't understand that mindfulness is orthogonal to a regular way of thinking and being then you end up with mindfulness as just another like cognitive behavior therapy technique. What do you make of that comment by John Kabat-Zinn? You know, I think it's, it's like typical John. It's like speaking with flourishes and uh, being very emphatic. Um, so it's great to be able to be um, dramatic when you're providing guidance to 200 people at a workshop. Um, but I think that he wouldn't agree with that now because I think that comment is you know, seriously dualistic. And I think part of what John's interested these days, at least, is to show that things actually are connected with each other in such a way that looking at them dualistically is not very helpful. But maybe those days, you know, it was important to try to have some division between what he saw as mindfulness and what he saw as CBT. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, I kind of see part of that as just like performance art. How, is, how have the two communities evolved? The Center for Mindfulness Study, uh, Center for Mindfulness at UMass, although I understand there may be moving. Yeah. Um, and your group in Toronto and the UK, uh, these programs are obviously very, very similar and in many cases being taught in the same places. Um, How have they co-evolved over the years? Well, it's interesting. I I think there's been a trajectory. So if I were to map the trajectory initially, I would say that um, I think our, um, our trajectory initially was much more on gathering evidence that MBCT was effective and then moving more towards um, understanding some of the mechanisms uh, of action of MBCT. And I think MBSR followed a similar kind of trajectory, getting evidence that it, that it worked and then starting to, to look at different elements. I think initially there was the sense um, that MBCT was, was just a kind of minor variant of MBSR. And people pointed to the fact that the, um, you know, the practices were the same and, and, um, you know, there was a lot in there that was kind of quote taken unquote from MBSR. But um, 
I think that there are real differences, and I think the communities have evolved so that they're each seen as, as, as being unique and helpful in their own way, and there doesn't need to be a kind of top dog, underdog relationship. Uh, in some ways, I think MBSR and MBCT have diverged, and that's been healthy. It's been like a child leaving the house to individuate and then coming back later as an adult. Uh, so now I think the communities sit with their own um, centers of excellence. I, I think the Center for Mindfulness continues to be a resource for all things MBSR. I think the Center for Mindfulness in Toronto, I think your work in Montreal, I think the Oxford Center for Mindfulness are places where people can get excellent training in MBCT. There are certificate programs, university diplomas offered in MBCT. Um, but I think more to the fact, MBCT has embraced the uh, need for more declarative means to train therapists in um, the, the approach. If you look at the first edition and the second edition of the MBCT manual, we map out every session, we talk about curricula, we tell therapists you know, the kinds of things that um, they need to, to do to prepare for each class. And I think up to a certain point in time, that wasn't available in MBSR. Um, I think there are other philosophical uh, differences with respect to the importance of retreat training in terms of therapist training. MBSR has a different purview in the sense that anyone can come into it from different professions, and then if they're able to follow the curriculum, um, they will get trained you know, to, to, to a level of proficiency, whereas with MBCT, you're already starting with people that have a, a mental health background and, and experience, often physicians, psychologists, psychiatrists. So the training and their exposure to some of these constructs um, is already uh, something that they bring with them. So there are ways in which they individuate, and I think that that's really healthy. But right now, I think both of them are facing uh, the bigger challenge of impacting you know, public health in a meaningful way. I wonder what it was like for you to see this thing that you were working on over the years just grow into like a massive paradigm shift in mental health and beyond. I guess, you know, uh, seeing the impact of MBSR uh, sort of maybe more broadly. Mm -hmm. um, what's that like for you to sort of be at the center of this thing and then to watch it turn into like a global phenomenon? Um. It's really interesting because there is something that you do watch and you get information coming at you that this is happening and this is going. And so initially, you know, you might get um, requests to um, be interviewed. You, you might get requests to have uh, some kind of exposure at a conference where people are asking you to speak about MBCT. And so for me, I would say that there were moments in which um, the building blocks of that that I can remember are some of our initial studies being published and being cited um, tremendously. Um, and the way that I would register that is that I would share it with Mark and John. We'd send each other emails and say, you know, I can't believe that this paper is getting so many citations or it's um, really being widely circulated. That was one thing. I think um, in the UK, Mark and John, um, mainly Mark did some work with the BBC around MBCT. We couldn't believe it. Like, why would they want to be writing about this um, slowly? Those kinds of things happen. And I think I do remember a number of email exchanges that really had the biggest impact on us. When Mark would forward me something or I would forward something to them, a random patient emailing us out of nowhere saying, you know, like, and we're talking from like the Midwest or somewhere in, you know, in Wales, um, just saying, you know, I read your book, I've been using this, or I attended a program here, and I attended a program there. It's been very helpful. Just wanted to say thank you for your work. That's the kind of um, feedback that really we were blown away by because it was so far off our radar and, and the kind of academic grid that we were used to plugging into that really gave us the sense of um, this is very helpful and, and just the gratitude of being involved with being able to provide and support something like this. 
So I would say that was the up, uh, the upward slope. And then the other thing that happens is that you recognize that you're in a kind of um, flow that has its own trajectory. And then all of a sudden, MBCT, which had its ascendance, is then being replaced by other things. And so now you're the thing that people are saying is not good enough and that needs to be replaced. So mindful self-compassion is an example. Um, where all of a sudden it was in the ascendancy and MBCT was the thing that was, well, we're improving on MBCT. And I think that eventually there's going to be something else. So you don't want to get too caught up in the ups and downs of all of these things and um, just see it more as a kind of ride that you're on uh, because the field itself and the community itself um, keeps changing and defining by factors that really have nothing to do. Like I'm not, we're not pushing MBCT and we're not dampening down mindful self-compassion or whatever the thing is these days. There's just a way in which um, interests and appetites fluctuate. And they're also in part created by a marketplace of publishers and things. But that's really, you know, what I've been observing in terms of um, how MECT has come forward. And then I think you really want to keep your eye on the prize and say, what's the most important thing we need to be working on? And it used to be efficacy. And now, Part of it is mechanisms, and the other part is public health impact. Let's talk about that public health impact because I've heard you speak about this before. Um, there's a big challenge around scaling this thing to meet the demand. I think, um, if I'm not mistaken, MBCT is now sort of recognized and covered by the public health care system in the UK. So yeah. that is a major uh, transformation required of mental health services there. How do you do that? So the way that they're doing it is that they're very slowly starting to seed fund the training of MBCT therapists uh, with, let's say, there's an estimate of uh, if they need 220 MBCT funded therapists throughout the UK, they've started by funding 48 and they're going to um, evaluate how that, how that goes in terms of both the efficacy of the training and then their capacity to reduce, um, you know, residual depressive symptoms and maybe um, functioning for, for these patients. Um, and so that's their approach to, to pour money from the health system into these targeted um, therapeutic resources throughout the country. It's, it's a bold plan. It's revolutionary in the sense that I can't think of any other jurisdiction that's doing that. So that's one approach. I think the other approach um, in other countries, let's say like the U.S. or Canada, where you don't have one um, overall um, governmental health agency that can dictate this, is to try to make it available on the web so that people can access it. Because um, the real problem is that as much as people may read about MBCT and, and, and feel like it could be something helpful to them, it's really hard to find an MBCT therapist or join a group or find a group. And uh, the possibility of putting it online and, and digitizing the group experience in addition to the content um, is another way to go. And so that's why we were involved with developing MMB, which is Mindful Mood Balance, and, and testing it in this open trial and then currently um, in this large trial with 460 patients that's um, I think going to be completed uh, towards the end of November. Is that your project with Kaiser Permanente or is that something else? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. That's the big project with Kaiser. And so what is their interest? Is this, um, I'm, I'm guessing they, they're motivated to provide good healthcare to their customers and there's a, probably a financial incentive because uh, presumably there's an efficiency to working uh, on this channel, um, how did how did that relationship come about? So that's a <clears throat> that's a really good question because um, what 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 they are is they're a large insurer, and so for insurance companies or HMOs, which essentially have people who who subscribe and pay for services for them, <clears throat> they are interested in providing good quality care. But good quality care has a financial benefit in the sense that uh, these people may be utilizing services um, less intensely and so then that's costing them uh, less uh, as a provider. Um, 
we had a collaborative link. Uh, Sona Demidjian, who's also working with this on me, had a collaborative link with, with Kaiser through some other work that she'd done. And Kaiser was really asking this question, you know, we have, um, we have a depression care pathway. Um, what happens if we add this additional module, module related to relapse prevention and residual symptoms? Can we do even better than what we're doing? And if it's an online treatment that doesn't require a therapist calling in or being available, can this be done for minimal cost? And um, that's what we're going to find out, both you know, the efficacy side, the cost side. But there's nothing, you know, the challenge for me personally is that there's, there, there's nothing that has been promised in terms of follow-up. So we may end up doing this study. Kaiser got a, a considerable amount of money from our grant. Our grant was about $2.1 million. Over five years, they received about a million of that money. So there's that, but that's not a, you know, that's not a huge incentive. Um, the real question is, what's the follow-up going to be? And, and they haven't made any commitments to saying, if this really flies, we're going to take it on, we're going to roll it out. That's work that we still have to do to see whether we can make the case to them um, that this is worth um, them uh, committing to. But that would be one scenario. Mm -hmm. What's it like trying to kind of take this very intimate group experience that happens in clinics and hospitals and yoga studios and to recreate it online? How's that been working out? Well, I think you have to look at what the, what, what's your baseline? You know, what, what are you going to compare it against? Are you going to compare it against the in-person experience and say like, wow, nothing can touch that. So how could you even think of recreating some of it digitally? Or can you look at um, programs that are currently available to try to do some of that? And there are a lot. When we got into this space, there was a lot of work that had already been done on, on digitizing uh, cognitive therapy, for example. Um, you look at a lot of those websites, and they're relatively what we call flat. In other words, um, a lot of text and um, not very interactive. So it's almost like you're taking a book and you're providing it to people online in a way that has some features of engagement but it's still pretty text heavy. And what we decided was to um, have the same uh, learning engine inside MBCT recreated online by having people uh, be guided in the practices, by having people record their experiences to what they noticed when they practiced right afterwards, and then by having people watch videos of an actual group uh, engage in inquiry around the practices. So in a sense, giving folks who are doing the program online the same exposure to the type of learning around the practice of mindfulness that they would receive in a group in person. And there are some benefits that people have um, talked about in terms of you know the convenience and the ability to access this and, and to work on it at, at a pace that is directed um, you know by the other demands in their lives and the feedback that we've had at least in terms of the reduction in symptoms and um, functioning has been very positive um, we consulted with with I think Tara Brock and Sharon Salzberg took a look at the website gave us some feedback before we launched um, so I feel like we are, you know, we've done the best that we can with this and it's not, it, it may or may not be the same in terms of the intensity of what you get from coming to a group, but there are other ways in which it's also very workable for people uh, who can't find a group anywhere near them. Yeah, that's, it's a really interesting, um, kind of challenge there and, I want to I want to dive into the science um, behind all this in a sec, but it, it, your last comment sort of reminded me of a question that I've been struggling with myself, and that is: we know that these mindfulness-based programs, particularly the ones with a strong evidence base, are doing something that help people 
manage their mood or deal with stress or whatever. And then these things get adapted for new contexts. In fact, NVCT uh, is an example of an adaptation. And then the online version is another adaptation and so on down the line until you get things like uh, some kind of mindfulness intervention in a uh, workplace, yeah. uh, mindfulness intervention with kids, and continuing on the line, uh, someone with very little training but just read a book or did a weekend workshop and is essentially saying the same things, like teaching the same basic ideas and guiding the same meditations. So what do you, what's your take on these adaptations and, you know, where along the line, if anywhere, does the magic disappear? Or should we say anyone, anywhere that's like closing their eyes and doing a body scan and learning how to shift their attention is kind of enjoying the benefits of this practice? Um, It's a bit of a loaded question. Um. But you know, before we before we got started, if you went online and you went to the Google App Store or the iPhone App Store, um, and you put the word mindfulness in there, there were already, I think, 250 hits of apps that had the word mindfulness or did something that featured mindfulness. You went onto YouTube, hundreds of recordings of people leading mindfulness. So that's like already out there, and when you're talking about mindfulness in terms of the large, you know, capital M mindfulness, people leading a body scan, people leading sitting meditation. Uh, if you just, if you just look at some of those, there's such a, a huge variance in what people understand mindfulness to be. So if I'm looking at, um, I'll give you an example. Um, I was looking at a YouTube search term, three minute breathing space listening to the way people guide it. Some of these people guide it with music in the background. Some of these people guide it in a, a way that has very you know beautiful lighting and relaxing images. Some people guide it in ways that emphasize um, distraction and fixing their mental states. There, there are people who, who understand mindfulness at very, very different levels. And so then I think that that contributes to the variety. It, it actually speaks to the need for some kind of um, certification or uh, some kind of, of training that is more than what you said in terms of someone reading a book and going out and teaching this to people. But that happens. That's already happening. That's already out there. And I think in our program, the role of mindfulness is not to teach people mindfulness. The role of mindfulness is to help people address certain states of mind that are unhelpful through the elements inside mindfulness, which can give them greater options and allow them to work more skillfully with this. If the people doing the training, let's say in a work setting, are not, are not familiar with the mind states that they're going to encounter in their employees, or um, in, in their participants, if other people are not familiar and haven't worked with those mind states themselves and haven't been able to hold and to um, build a container for those mind states, then the training that they're going to provide is probably going to be um, aimed more at uh, like a relaxation or a stress alleviation response or something like that. And, and sometimes that can get into fixing and that can get into something which is stepping away from, I think, one of the real things that mindfulness allows you to do, which is to befriend and to acquaint yourself with the modes of mind that, you know, come up time and again and finding different ways of working with them. What did you mean when you said it was a loaded question? Well, because I'm not really here to pass judgment on what other people are doing because I'm not, you know, like an ultimate expert. Mm -hmm. Um, That's kind of what I meant. But at the same time, I can see, you know, I know how I teach the three-minute breathing space. I know where I'm coming from and what we're trying to do and then seeing how other people do it. But I just kind of embracing the variety and the fact that there is like uh, a a huge range in how these things are conveyed. And I would bet some of them are helpful and some of them are less helpful. 
Yeah, I'm not. Sh- I wouldn't say that I was interested in passing judgment or baiting you into passing judgment either. Yeah. I'm genuinely curious, and I actually sort of think it's an empirical question, which, in fact, we may get into here. Like, what are the active ingredients, and how much training is necessary? And so, these are things that the field itself is is really grappling with, and there it's a it's it's a good discussion to have. Um, I think that more and more, one of the things from from the research perspective that's being pointed out is that um, at least in NBCT, when people do well in this approach, they are able to engage in decentering. They're able to engage in watching their experiences and not reacting to them immediately, but having some measure of choice around how to respond. And it's especially true in situations where you're speaking about emotion regulation. Um, And I think a lot of the mindfulness work helps you to see that anger is present, for example, in the mind, it's here, um, versus I am angry, versus um, there's only one thing which is true right now, and, and that's going to come from the anger that I'm feeling. So building that up, I think, is very important. It gives people choice and allows them to respond more adaptively. Um, how you do that is, I think, part of the empirical question that you were referring to. Like, Does someone need a lot of training to do that? Can, can people do that with um, just simple exercises? Do you need to go through the full MBCT program? Does it come from... Uh, practicing sitting meditation, or does it come from having a therapist who is, uh, you know, welcoming and um, encouraging of you to share your experiences? Does it come from the group members who are normalizing and deshaming any diagnosis that you might have? We don't exactly know for sure. I think we do know generally that decentering as a mechanism is very important and how you arrive at that is something that a lot of uh, teachers are, are concerned with. There are some data that suggests that practice of mindfulness helps you build decentering. There's a paper that's now in press in JCCP, Norman Farb and I have published, showing that once MBCT or CBT are over, people who continue to practice the skills that they were taught in the course continue to build decentering and increases in decentering help prevent them from relapsing over two years. And those are some of the first data that actually tie the practice of taught skills to uh, important clinical outcomes. So in the case of MBCT, I'm guessing that's meditation or is it the informal practices like the three-minute breathing space? And, and what would that entail for so we CBT don't, we participants? Don't know. I think we still need to ju- uh, jump into that a little bit, but we know that of, of, of the six practices that we looked at and they were collapsed, um, the six practices were sitting meditation, uh, body scan, mindful movement, mindful walking, three minute breathing space, informal mindfulness or everyday mindfulness. If you look at that as a, a cluster and different people did different things, practicing at a higher frequency compared to practicing at a lower frequency was associated with increases in decentering over two years and increases in decentering uniquely predicted protection against relapse. Wow. That's pretty cool data. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, I wonder if we can back up a step here and just get a bit more of the baseline about the evidence uh, supporting the effectiveness of this intervention. So, you talked about um, protecting against relapse. Uh, and I believe that's where that's an outcome that you guys look at a lot. So what can you say about the effectiveness of MBCT for preventing depressive relapse? I think the best evidence uh, comes from two sources. Uh, one of them is a, a large individual patient data meta-analysis. So taking individual patient data from, I think, five or seven studies. It was published by Willem Kuyken in uh, JAMA Psychiatry. I think it was 2015 um, or 2016, or maybe in 2015. Um, 
where they found that the effect size for MBCT was um, significantly greater than um, control conditions that were treatment as usual or what people were receiving, and that the effect sizes were on par with the effect sizes for antidepressant medication. So the way that I interpret that is that the degree of protection offered by people taking MBCT is on par with what they would receive if they were continuing on an antidepressant over time. And that's very powerful because um, we know that antidepressants may not work for everyone or that people may not be willing to stay on them for two or three years. Um, and so MBCT can offer uh, an equivalent without sacrificing prophylaxis. And then I think the other study that is um, important is the one published in The Lancet, once again by Willem Kuyken and the group at Oxford, um, that showed in a comparison between people who were treated to remission with an antidepressant, um, half of a, I think their overall sample was 424. So 212 patients stayed on their antidepressant over two years. 212 patients um, were able to come off their antidepressant. They had support to taper their antidepressant and come off it. 70% of that group did. And there were no differences in the rates of relapse between these people who were continuing to take their medicine versus people who had stopped taking their medicine, had MBCT, and that presumably used those skills to stay well. Those are two very, um, I think, high levels of empirical support for the idea that MBCT is, is both effective and, and has uh, the capacity to, to, to provide people with a certain degree of care against relapses. Yeah, it's very powerful evidence and certainly the kind of thing that inspired me to uh, become an MBCT teacher. My understanding is that the scientific literature on all this is moving towards teasing apart mechanisms. And we talked a little bit about um, decentering or psychological distance. And you mentioned that that seems to be an important ingredient in both MBCT and CBT. What other new trends or where's the literature going right now, um, given that you've got this very strong foundation, what's, what's coming up? So I think that, um, you know, efficacy studies are, are less important these days in the sense of do, we don't need another trial comparing MBCT to, to treatment as usual or, or, or to other therapies. We've just conducted a, a study and published it, I think, uh, in February of this year in JCCP showing MBCT and CBT are equally effective in preventing relapse. Um, the, the question now becomes mechanisms, um, because mechanisms are very helpful in terms of suggesting how people should be trained and how the protocol or the approach might be improved if, if teaching towards mechanisms could be um, further refined. And one of the thoughts that I have is when we look at some of the data from um, this practice study that I was telling you about, it seems as if people are certainly practicing. Um, they're not practicing as much as we ask them to practice. And I think as a, as a teacher yourself, Joe, you probably see this. Uh, we're asking them for home, home practice to, to do it, say, six days out of seven. Very few people do that. But there are people, I would say, in groups on average practicing two and a half times a week. Um, so they're engaged to some extent. And the role of practice was very important at the beginning of MBCT because we felt like this is really the delivery vehicle for the skills of mindfulness. Um, but it seems that there, there, there's variation inside of practice. So a very important question is, how is it that there are some people who don't practice very much who do well, and there are some people who practice a lot and do poorly? And that's a bit of a paradox, but when you speak to, um, to experienced mindfulness teachers, and I've had this conversation recently at a conference with Ajahn Amaro, 
Um, one of the things that he was saying is that, is that practice in and of itself is important, but you can get hung up on it um, and lose sight of the fact that people who engage in practice may be doing so because they've installed something um, that's called a right view, which is a, a bigger view of the role of practice in their own care. And maybe one of the things that these programs are doing are helping people establish uh, just a sense of agency or a sense of um, viewing their own care as something that they have a hand in. They're participating in this. And then that ends up informing a lot of the decisions that they end up taking for themselves, bigger than whether or not to practice. So then practice becomes one of the supports for this larger view of self-care rather than the only thing which if they do it they're going to be well and if they don't do it they're going to suffer and i think that those are some of the nuanced ways of trying to look at the practice data um, that may be coming out in, in the years to come um, that's just one thing that i might suggest that really resonates with me um, just looking at my experience as a teacher uh-huh. because so much of the airtime during inquiry and, and the discussions in the group are about, oh, I wasn't able to practice as much as I wanted to and I'm so disappointed and this, yeah. this was supposed to really help me and I'm not doing it. And then all the same attitudes that are probably contributing to um, keeping the person down emotionally now become transferred to the practice. And I feel like so much of the time I'm helping people develop the right attitude towards the practice that it is important to do, but it shouldn't become another source of self-criticism or another source of pessimism or whatever. Um, And so I just, I I really like this idea that it sort of becomes the vehicle through which uh, these, uh, a shift in attitude um, is required or, or is worked through. But, but the danger here, and I, I actually had this at a conference um, a few months ago where I was speaking about this. The danger here is that someone comes up, someone came up to me and said, oh, this is so interesting what you're talking about. So I guess now it doesn't matter whether you practice or not because good things are going to happen anyways. Mm-hmm. And that's actually not the point at all. The right view doesn't develop through letting go of practice. Right view, I think, develops because there's something bigger that you are able to build for yourself and practice ends up feeding that. And then once practice has a position in there, it doesn't doesn't necessarily matter if you're um, practicing all the time, but but practice becomes one way of supporting that larger framework. But you may not ever get to that larger framework unless you practice. it's, it's important not to back away from practice, but it's also important not to see practice as like the only thing that you can be doing. And then, as you said, get yourself caught up in knots because you're judging yourself or you're blaming yourself or you're very disappointed. Mm-hmm. So let's stay on the, on the ground and on the day-to-day reality of how these groups kind of play out in clinics and hospitals and whatnot. So I wanted to ask you about my experience and it's probably um, very common that um, in your studies, uh, I think you probably have fairly clear and stringent inclusion and exclusion criteria. Um, But when people show up at Mindspace or at other clinics, what you often get are like a, a real range of different types of problems. And so there's definitely uh, acute mood problems and there's often uh, anxiety in the mix as well, because obviously anxiety and depression co-occur so much. Um, I wonder what your take is on the fact that um, in reality, the population that's being treated or that is receiving this intervention tends to be much more mixed. Yeah, I think that it's a, it's a just a reality of um, treating people with uh, mood disorders, um, that there's a lot of comorbidity. And so when you develop a treatment, you try and be careful with respect to the diagnoses that you feel 
are best suited for this approach. But at the same time, I think you have to recognize that unless there are some very clear rule outs, then um, people who come into the groups are going to be, I think, presenting with a number of different concerns. And for me, I think one of the, the rule outs might be depression that is still too severe to be treated inside an MBCT framework. Uh, I worry less about anxiety. I worry less about other features. Um, and part of that, I think, is that there's an accumulating literature to suggest that MBCT can be quite effective for for anxiety disorders, that the same um, processes of, that perpetuate symptoms, things like worry, procrastination, discrepancy monitoring, all those kinds of things, find themselves, are, are found in, in anxiety and other disorders. So you can, you can target them as well through teaching people the practice of mindfulness. What about this um, notion of adverse effects uh, from meditation? Uh, so maybe people with trauma backgrounds or even, even people who don't have any uh, sort of a risk profile, but have some very scary things happening during meditation. Do you think, is that a concern of yours? Do you think people are adequately trained to manage those kinds of difficulties? Well, let me ask you, I mean, you've run a number of MBCT groups and you have an experience, as you said, on the ground. In terms of the groups that you've run, have you had people who have reported some of the extreme adverse events that have been written about? I wouldn't say I've had a ton of that. I mean, certainly um, meditation can be challenging. It's sort of like there's, a, there's an important insight that many people have um, as they get into an MBCT or an ABSR group that it's not like going to the spa and getting a massage. Yes. And a lot of the, the media coverage, uh, magazines and blog posts and whatnot, um, will talk about these programs as like stress reduction and learn to calm your anxiety and all this stuff. And people it's really done a disservice to people because of the expectations they bring into the program. And so we try to uh, cut that off at the pass of the orientation, but I think the expectations go very deep because people are suffering and want to believe this narrative that this is going to be the cure all and they're going to feel so much better. Um, And so, you know, difficulties arise. And of course the whole point of these programs is to, um, teach people how to respond skillfully to these difficult moments. Right. Um, so I'm okay with that, but um, I do have uh, a psych- uh, individual psychotherapy practice. And so I have a fair bit of experience working with difficult mind states and mood states. Um, not everybody does. And maybe it's just a question of people having the right background to um, so that they're developing the experience and the skills for working with those difficulties um, safely. Right. And I think the context is really important here. Uh, uh, Most of the uh, literature that I've seen reporting on adverse events, uh, I think talks about people in a retreat context Mm -hmm. and talks about people who have been relatively unselected in attending retreats. And the the retreat leaders themselves having probably little training in dealing with um, clinically severe events or clinically concerning events or emergences. I think in MBCT and probably in MBSR, it's it's different in the sense that, well, in MBCT anyways, we screen people. People running these groups have a background. And the practices are relatively brief and we're not involved in something as intense as, as retreats. So in my experience, I haven't seen anywhere near the, the prevalence of these adverse events that has been written about in literature. And I think that there may be a, a, a problem with the confusion of contexts where these adverse events are uh, attached to meditation in general. 
versus the way in which these procedures are taught inside um, MBCT. And even though people in MBCT are, are showing up with a different um, profile in the sense that they're, they're not just anyone from the community, they're often people with some mood disorder. So I think adverse events are always important to monitor and to follow and, and to recognize, and especially the role of trauma. That's why I think we put such importance on screening for trauma and addressing it at the interview initially, but people do come through um, regardless sometimes. So I think these two contexts are important to keep in mind. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm noticing the time here. We are coming up on an hour and, and just really appreciate you um, sharing this time with us. Um, is there any final thoughts uh, you want to share? Um, maybe something we haven't covered or some suggestions for people who might be curious about MBCT but don't know where to go next or people who uh, may experience depression and uh, would be looking for some guidance about how to find an MBCT program or an MBCT teacher? Well, I think the, the guidance issue is um, a good one to talk about because we have recently launched Access MBCT, which is a freely searchable online um, listing of MBCT programs uh, around the world. Um, so people can go to that website, they can try to find an MBCT program um, closer to home if, if, if there is one. Um, but there's also a lot of other resources if people can't um, find a program close to them. There are patient resources. There's the Mindful Way Workbook, which is essentially the eight-week MBCT program that people can follow for themselves. There are, uh, there's a CD with the recordings of the same practices. There are a lot of worksheets. People have told me that they found that useful as a way of engaging. And um, I think it's just a, a matter of trying to not expect too much out of the program. And what I say to people is that it's really helpful if you let yourself judge the program, but wait until the end of the eight weeks before making that judgment and seeing if you can suspend the judgment while you're in the program itself to let whatever is possible show up for you. And uh, at the end of the program, I think you'll know if there's something that you want to continue with uh, through this work or if there's something else that you want to pursue. Really appreciate that uh, advice. It uh, certainly makes sense to me. Uh, how do people find the Access MBCT resource? <clears throat> well, if you're living in Europe, um, specifically France or Switzerland, they love it because there are a lot of MBCT therapists that are listed. Um, in the UK, they have their own registry of mindfulness therapists, so I think they're pretty well looked after. The puzzle to me is why um, we have so few people from Canada and the US that are listed on Access MBCT, and yet this is really um, you know, with huge populations in the U.S. And, and Canada, there are so few people listed. I don't know whether it's because the health systems are different. And so I find that one of my tasks is to try and increase the willingness of people to list themselves on Access MBCT so that the public can know about them and their work can be um, offered and made available. Well, I was certainly... Uh, one of the first people listed there. I was really excited yes. Um, yes. that it's up there on the web. And uh, particularly because I had to go a fairly go through a fairly rigorous process to get a certificate to teach. And um, it's really useful, useful for people to know, um, you know, who's out there that has been rigorously trained uh, for all the reasons we discussed. Uh, and so I certainly hope that, uh, you know, it does get a little more uptake and um, I hope this conversation helps a little bit. And uh, I'll certainly put a link to uh, that website in the show notes uh, for this uh, podcast. That's and uh, I think that probably takes us to the end. Is there anything else you wanted to mention, Zindel? No, just keep up the good work, Joe. You're doing great things and, 
anything I can do to support it, I'd be happy to do. Thanks so much, Lindell, and thanks again for your time. And I hope to catch up with you again soon. Okay, take care. Great to speak. Likewise. Bye-bye. Take it easy. Bye-bye.